You're listening to a podcast by Lance Lambert Ministries. For more information on this ministry, visit lancelambert.org or follow us on social media to receive all of our updates. In this episode, we will listen to chapter one of the audiobook for Let the House of God Be Built. If you are interested in listening to the full audiobook, you can find the link to purchase it in the show notes. This chapter tells the beginning of the story of Halford House. Through the intercession for Richmond and the Thames Valley, a group of young brothers and sisters were united in seeking the Lord and discerning His will for their gathering. Let's listen to chapter one of Let the House of God Be Built. Chapter one, born out of spiritual travail. The whole story of Halford House began with a group of people who became deeply burdened for the area in which they were living. At the most, there were eight people involved. All of the group were young people in their late teens or early twenties, apart from Ernest and Dora Townsend. None of us were famous or exceptional in talent. Ken and Jill Douglas and Eileen Johnson are now safely with the Lord, as well as Ernest and Dora Townsend. My sister Teresa and I are the only ones still remaining of the original eight. The Holy Spirit's Burden It was a colossal burden that was conceived in us by the Holy Spirit, which would not let us rest. I had some experience of intercession whilst in Egypt, and had seen a number of my fellow servicemen come to the Lord. However, none of us, including myself, had ever been involved in intense corporate intercession. I had witnessed it with two elderly sisters who had prayed for situations all over the Middle East, and this had deeply impacted me. I returned from Egypt in August 1951. I had spent three years in the Royal Air Force and experienced genuine fellowship amongst those who were believers in Egypt. When I returned to Britain and to the Richmond-upon-Thames area, I felt like a fish out of water. It was as though God had no home in Richmond. There were plenty of evangelical places of worship and all the evangelical paraphernalia that went with it but little spiritual building of the house of the Lord. All eight of us shared the same burden. Although we did not fully understand it, the Holy Spirit placed on all our hearts Isaiah chapter 62 verses 1 to 3 and 6 to 7. This became an intense burden with no relief and no escape, except through intercession. The Hebrides Revival, 1949 to 1952. At that time, all the talk in evangelical circles was about the Hebrides revival. Between 1949 and 1952, a widespread revival swept through those islands in answer to the prayer of some of God's people. There were two elderly sisters, Peggy and Christine Smith, who received a burden from the Lord from which they could not escape. They were 84 and 82 years old. Peggy was blind, and her sister was almost bent double with arthritis. As a result, they could not attend worship and turned their little cottage into a sanctuary of intercession. Night and day they sought the Lord. He gave them the promise, For I will pour water upon him that is thirsty, and streams upon the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon thy seed, and my blessing upon thine offspring. Isaiah 44 verse 3 They took this scripture and prayed it into fulfilment, standing with the Lord until he performed it. 
There was also a group of men in the same district who met together in a barn to intercede for the same awakening and revival. They also received a promise from the Lord that, If my people who are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray, and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin, and will heal their land. 2 Chronicles 7 verse 14 In the same manner as the two elderly sisters, they persisted in intercession until it happened. These two sisters and these brothers had understood a vitally strategic essential in intercession. They had understood what the Lord meant when he gave us the pattern prayer in Matthew 6, 9-13, and in particular the words, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, as in heaven, so on earth. This kind of intercession, which resulted in the Hebrides' revival, came as a consequence of their understanding of the will of God. First, they had the word of God and the revelation of his will for the Hebrides. And secondly, by the power of the Holy Spirit and the grace of God, they prayed it into being. When the Holy Spirit was poured out upon those islands, men and women were saved everywhere. Shepherds in the hills who were caring for their sheep fell on their faces and were saved. Fishermen fell on the decks of their fishing boats and got saved. Likewise, many were saved in meetings and others in their homes and cottages. There were many outstanding miracles which took place during those days. The story of the Hebrides revival had an enormous challenge for the eight of us. If the Lord could do it in the Hebrides, could he not do it in the Thames Valley? I had read Charles Finney's lectures on revival and said to the other seven, if you want to be disturbed, you should read, in particular, the chapter on ploughing up the fallow ground. It had deeply disturbed me, because Finney had said that if we want awakening and revival, we have a responsibility to break up the hard ground in our lives. It was exactly what had happened in the lives of those sisters and brothers who prayed into existence the move of the Lord in the Hebrides. For example, amongst the group of men that met in the barn was a young deacon who rose and quoted Psalm 24 verses 3 to 4. Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart, who hath not lifted up his soul unto vanity, nor sworn deceitfully, he shall receive the blessing from the Lord. Turning to the others, he said, Brethren, it seems to me just so much humbug to be waiting and praying as we are if we ourselves are not rightly related to God. Then lifting his hands towards heaven, he cried, O God, are my hands clean? Is my heart pure? He got no further but fell prostrate to the floor. An awareness of God filled the barn and the power of the Holy Spirit was let loose in their lives. The eight of us talked together about breaking up the fallow ground. We wondered whether the burden we had was truly from the Lord or whether it was emotional, a result of all the talk about the Hebrides revival. We therefore covenanted together to do an extraordinary thing. We would not speak about revival, read about revival or even pray about revival for one whole month. If at the end of that one month this burden was still with us in the same power, we would know it was from the Lord. Thus, for the whole month of August 1951, we neither spoke about revival nor read about it, neither discussed it nor even prayed about it. 
At the end of that month, we found that the burden in us was greater than ever. It was like a pain in our spirits. I was only a young Christian, but I can only describe it as incurable pain. I could not get it out of my system. It was there like a deep, deep anguish of the Holy Spirit. Costly and Committed Intercession On the first day of September 1951, we started to pray, and we prayed every evening of September, October, November and December until Christmas of 1951. Our times of prayer began just after 7pm and went on until between 10 and 10.30pm. In the middle of it, we had the severest smog that London had ever known, in which 3,000 people died. Fog is thick mist and is natural. Smog is a mixture of smoke and fumes combined with mist and can be a killer. For ten days, we could not see across the street. At one point during those days, all transport ceased, but it never stopped our prayer. We walked about three miles across Richmond to the home of Ernest and Dora Townshend. In those times of prayer and intercession, we were never less than two and never more than eight. We prayed every night, and on Saturday we would pray from two o'clock until six o'clock, so that we could attend the young people's meeting in the church, to which many of us belonged. We also got permission to pray in the vestry of that church on Sunday evenings, so that we were not a faction or division, and we prayed for the service as well. In fact, we never cancelled a single session of prayer during those four months. One Single Burden for Prayer We had only one single burden in our intercession, and we never deviated from that burden. We did not pray for Nepal or China or Australia or even Japan. We simply prayed for Richmond and the Thames Valley. Every evening of prayer lasted no less than three hours. Now we all know how hard it is to sustain prayer for half an hour, even when there are many items that need to be prayed through. As I recall that time, I'm still amazed at it. It is like a dream. However, I remember that when we began to pray, we could do nothing else but pray. At the end of those three hours, it was rather like a tank that had been drained of all its water, and one could get up from one's knees with a feeling of relief. Notwithstanding, the next morning the tank was full again. One felt uncomfortable, as if one had a pain inside, and the only way to let it out was in intercession. I have often likened it to physical birth. Once an embryo has been conceived, it grows and there is no full relief until birth. It was my first real experience of corporate intercession on this level. It was the Spirit of God who was in us keeping alive a burden. Our intercession covered the whole varied life of the Richmond area. We prayed for all kinds of different places and those who were in them. For example, public houses, every kind of shady joint, bars, nightclubs, hospitals, schools and colleges, for local government, for the mayors of both Richmond and Twickenham, and of course for churches, both alive and dead. We had a burden, and it was a twofold burden. Firstly, that God would do a new thing in his people. And secondly, that he would start to save the unsaved straight off the street. We had no idea that one of the nightclubs we prayed for, the Astor Club, would be closed down by the police for immorality, and we would actually get possession of it and meet there for one whole year. That possibility never entered our heads when we were praying for it.
Koinonia. Those four months of prayer with the same burden were an incredible experience. We felt as if we were in a sovereign flow of God's power. As we have already pointed out, we all know how hard it is to pray for one subject for even half an hour. We prayed, however, for virtually one subject from all angles for three hours every single day, right up to Christmas 1951. Out of that came Koinonia, the interdenominational get-together of young people in the Richmond area, just to worship the Lord, to wait upon the Lord and fellowship together. We would take a subject and discuss it together, and then have a Bible study on it. The commencement of these sessions was on the first Friday of January 1952. We called it koinonia, which is the New Testament Greek word for fellowship or sharing, or having something in common. Within a month of the first session, nearly every evangelical church in the area was represented, in spite of it not being advertised. Our naming of this gathering of young people elicited quite an amount of criticism from older Christians in the churches. They said it was a Russian word, and they thought because I was in my early twenties I was politically leaning towards Marxism, and that this would be a great danger for the young people in the fellowship. The Bible studies in Koinonia, by the grace of God and the anointing of the Holy Spirit, became life-transforming for the young people who attended. The first Bible study in 1952 was entitled The Supremacy and Preeminence of the Lord Jesus. This one study seemed to impact permanently everyone who came. We spoke of the Lord Jesus as the centre and circumference of the Bible, the centre and circumference of the natural creation, the centre and circumference of salvation, the centre and circumference of the Christian life, and the centre and circumference of the church. This one study probably had more impact than any other that followed. Other subjects, for example, were the Lord's Table, Communion, Believer's Baptism, the Unity of All Believers, etc. Many young people got saved during the Bible studies. There was such power in the fellowship. The whole session was alive to God, and we expected Him to speak to us. After prayer and fellowship together, we decided that we would have three Fridays a month for Bible study, and one Friday a month for a kind of evangelistic outreach. We called this time a squash, because so many people would crowd in. In fact, the first one we had at the Townsend's home was so crowded that we had young people all over the ground floor, in all the rooms, up the stairs and into the bedrooms. We had made a stipulation that only those who brought an unsaved friend could come to the squash. The others were to go to the prayer meeting. A pastor of one of the fellowships spoke on that occasion. Three people got saved that night. We also felt that we should take places that the world widely used and with which it was comfortable. So we took the restaurant of the Ritz Cinema, we took the Kadena restaurant which was well known, and in both of these we had an evangelistic meeting. The most unusual place was when we took the largest Thames launch steamer and sailed up the River Thames from Richmond to Hampton Court and back. Once everybody was on board, they could not leave and the number got saved that night on the steamer. Each of these evangelistic times was preceded by a number of sessions of prayer. One young man, Ron Howes, who was a congregationalist but unsaved, came along to the sessions of prayer and found the Lord. 
He married Mildred Perkins, and they were faithful in the contribution they made to the fellowship from almost the beginning. Mildred in playing the piano at the meetings in the early years, and Ron looking after the practical side of the house and the stewarding. The Lifting of the Prayer Burden The most extraordinary fact was that with the advent of koinonia, the prayer burden that had been so intense in the eight of us lifted. At first, we wondered whether we were retreating from the original call which God had given us. However, when we tried to pray, it was just words. The impetus of the burden had lifted. We fellowshiped together and realised that to carry on with the prayer burden would be like flogging a dead horse. Later, with the wisdom of hindsight, we understood from the Lord that koinonia and what followed was the answer to our intercession. From this, we learnt one single but vital lesson. As in everything to do with our salvation, our Christian life and our church life, so it is with the ministry of intercession. It begins with Christ, it is empowered by Christ, and it ends with Christ. A church within a church. The criticism and condemnation that we received from the majority of Christians in our area was enormous. The rumours became facts in the eyes of many. We were accused of being Mormons, Russellites, Jehovah's Witnesses, and even of having tendencies towards Marxism. It was claimed that we worshipped the devil, that the money came from the devil, and the people converted amongst us were converted to the devil. Is it any wonder that these young people, numbering now approximately 100, were horrified, especially those who had been recently saved amongst us? They knew the truth and could not believe how real Christians could say such things. The accusations became so bad that a titled lady friend of mine, a missionary to India, who was on board a boat going out to that country, was asked by a bishop of the Church of England, Is it really true that Lance led a group of young men and smashed the manse of the pastor? I remember once at one of the Koinonia sessions in Berwyn Road, a young lady shot in. She never took off her hat or her coat, but she went straight into a corner and sat bolt upright in a chair, took a notebook out and a pencil at the ready. Gradually, as the time went on, she relaxed more and more. She had been sent in by a Sunday school superintendent of one of the churches of the area to take notes of the seance we were supposedly having. No wonder she was nervous. However, she got so blessed that she stayed. The superintendent then said, Lance has a devilishly hypnotic influence over people. The pastor of one of the largest and most powerful evangelical churches in the area to which I belonged asked to see me and the other leaders of Koinonia. He gave us an ultimatum. Either we went into the organisation of the Baptist church or all who were members of his church would be expelled. That came as a thunderbolt to us. We were confused and not sure what course to take. We had at that time adopted the normal Baptist and congregational practice of a majority vote. I gave them a pep talk on not splitting the church, which was a famous church and had missionaries all over the world. A narrow majority felt we should go back into the organisation, but a minority felt it was wrong to go back. Now it turned out that the ones who said it would be wrong were right. The moment we went back into the church organisation and had our meetings announced from the pulpit, 
It was as if all the power left us. A curtain seemed to have come down upon us all. We realised that we had made a huge mistake, and through it we learnt one of the greatest lessons it is possible to learn. We do not put matters right by retracing our steps and seeking to undo the mistake we have made. Why did we make the mistake in the first place? It was for the very reason that we did not seek the Lord. When the Lord said to the children of Israel, Go over into the land, and they would not, the Lord said, I am no longer with you, because you have disobeyed me. Then they said, We will go over. Moses said, Do not go over, because you made your first mistake when you did not listen to the Lord and trust him. Now you think you can rectify that mistake by simply undoing it, instead of hearing the Lord and in faith obeying him. From what we learnt in that situation, we threw out the majority vote and went by the principle of unanimity. We sought the Lord in prayer and heard him. We were to wait for his direction. Within a month, the same pastor came and said, It seems to me that this coming into the church organisation has divided it more than your being outside of it. Therefore, I think it is better if you take the whole thing outside. Our rejoicing knew no measure. Once again the power of God came to us and our gatherings were full of life. Nevertheless, we were a church within a church. Less and less fellow believers would speak to us. They would not shake our hands or greet us in any way. My old Sunday school teacher would turn his head the other way. People I had known from the day I was saved turned their back on me. They would not say good morning or good evening to me. I was not alone in this treatment. We all had this kind of experience. Many of these believers were those we loved very greatly, and we had received much from them spiritually. It was, for all of us, a time of anguish. We had become a church within a church. We decided that we should seek the Lord, so for three weeks we sought his face, some of us with fasting. We said, we will not make a majority block decision, we will each one do what the Lord says. There were 18 of us out of approximately 100 who felt they should resign from the churches of which they were members. The rest felt they should remain. Reduced to 18 believers It was not easy to be reduced from 100 to 18, and at the beginning we felt lost and confused. Everyone, it seemed to us, spoke against us. However, we took the one step that we had discovered to be the answer in any situation however difficult it could be. Together, we sought the Lord. We were, apart from the Townsends, all young people in our teens and twenties. Dora Townsend's sisters, Helen and Grace Wheelwright, joined us at that time. Suddenly we were alone, without the structure and organisation to which we had been accustomed. We were green youngsters and had no idea what to do. We just fell into the arms of God because for us there was no other possibility. It was the best position to be in. All the illumination and the revelation that came through his word and the experiences of him into which we came began from this position. The Lord took us as little children and led us all the way. Literally, he led us by the hand. As we sought the Lord, he gave us his word, confirmed by more than one witness. In other words, the scriptures which he gave us, as we were seeking him, were on the heart of more than one person amongst us. 
The first was, Depart ye, depart ye, go ye out from thence, touch no unclean thing, go ye out of the midst of her, cleanse yourselves, ye that bear the vessels of the Lord. For ye shall not go out in haste, neither shall ye go by flight. For the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your reward. Isaiah 52 verses 11 to 12 A second was, Therefore thus saith the Lord, If thou return, then will I bring thee again, that thou mayest stand before me. And if thou take forth the precious from the vile, thou shalt be as my mouth. They shall return unto thee, but thou shalt not return unto them. And I will make thee unto this people a fortified brazen wall, and they shall fight against thee, but they shall not prevail against thee. For I am with thee to save thee, and to deliver thee, saith the Lord. Jeremiah 15 verses 19 to 20. The third was, The word of the Lord also came unto me, saying, Son of man, thou dwellest in the midst of the rebellious house, that have eyes to see and see not, that have ears to hear and hear not, for they are a rebellious house. Therefore, thou son of man, prepare thee stuff for removing, and remove by day in their sight, and thou shalt remove from thy place to another in their sight. It may be they will consider, though they are a rebellious house. Ezekiel 12 verses 1 to 3 These scriptures were a great encouragement to us. They confirmed the position we had taken. At that time we did not know our Bible so well, and it was a great comfort to us that through some obscure parts of his word he spoke to us. We understood clearly from the Lord that we were never to go back, but that we were to go forward with him. Secondly, we understood that we were to remain within sight of the churches we had left. At the beginning, we met in a home. The first time we ever met for the Lord's table was on a very foggy morning in November 1952 at 20 Berwyn Road, East Sheen. We were about 20 people on that first occasion around the Lord's table. I spoke from what the Lord had given me in Proverbs 3, verses 5 to 6. Trust in the Lord with all thy heart, and lean not upon thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he will direct thy paths. As we simply trusted the Lord and his directions, and did not lean upon our own understanding, the Lord led us into everything. One of the rumours that went round the churches was that I had always wanted a church. It was, so it was claimed, my idea from the beginning, and it was an obsession of mine. However, I can honestly say that it had never occurred to me, or to any of us, to have a church. We never thought we would move out from the others. We thought the new thing that God was going to do would be in all these churches. It would be new life, new power, it would be revival and awakening. It was a terrible shock to us when we found ourselves finally outside of it all. We were on our own and totally ostracised. No one would touch us. Yet in the Lord's wisdom, it protected us from being swamped by multitudes of spectators, the Sunday go-to-meeting Christians. Those who came to us were either saved in our midst or had run the gauntlet. They were Christians who were hungry for something more of the Lord. Brother T. Austin Sparks was one who ran the gauntlet because he had much the same experience as we did. 
We enjoyed his fellowship and that of other brothers from the Christians meeting at Honor Oak. May you have a hunger to know more of the Lord. May you know the deep, deep love of Jesus.